a beautiful hymn. Have we ever sung that hymn before, have we? I heard you play it as a prelude the other week, and I thought, is Mrs. Baker playing Danny Boy? I think it's, it's the same tune, right? The same melody. Very beautiful hymn. Well, uh, I've heard it said, you probably have too, that, that Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And I very much appreciate the sentiment of that statement, but it might not be entirely accurate, and, and it's been terribly twisted, I'm afraid, at times. Um, religion, I think we should underscore, is not necessarily a bad word. James, in his book, uses it in a positive way. For example, he says, If anyone thinks himself to be religious and yet does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is worthless. And that indicates that James thinks that there's a worthwhile religion. He goes on to say, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So religion and relationship are not necessarily at odds with one another. And if you think that they are, you're going to have a hard time making sense of the earthly life of Jesus, because he did everything that his Jewish religion required of him. He went up to the temple feasts, He uh, was in synagogue on the Sabbath. But even true religion is not the root of a relationship with God. And I think that that's the important thing to underscore. That true religion is not the root of a relationship with God. It's the result of a relationship with God. Real religion... The things that we carry out, the way we worship, the things that we do, is a response. Encountering God is by grace. Now, early in his gospel, John told us the law came through Moses. Grace and truth came through the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's a kind of a tension there between law and grace. But you have to understand, as you look at the whole of the Bible that the tension that exists between law and grace is not a tension in God, but it's a tension in us. And law and grace are only opposed to each other when we see them as competing ways of gaining access to God, competing ways of having God's favor. And it's over this issue of grace, more than any other, the situation with Jesus and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and the teachers of the law. It was a complex situation, but it's over this issue of grace, more than any other, that the Pharisees, that the teachers of the law are going to collide with Jesus, and it will happen again and again. The religious leaders of Judea had a deep dislike for grace. And the truth is that we often do, too. It's very easy for us, it was for them, to think, well, religion is acceptable, but grace 
is not. I want to read to you today from uh, John's Gospel, chapter 7, verses 32 through 36. And remember here that uh, Jesus had gone up to the feast. It's the Feast of Booths. He went up quietly. Nobody knew that he was there. About halfway through, he begins teaching in the temple. And there's some discussion about that. And we uh, ended with seeing people beginning to say, could this be the Christ? When the Christ comes, will he do more signs than this man? Pick up at verse 32 here, John's Gospel. The Pharisees heard the crowd whispering such things about him. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. Jesus said, I am with you for only a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people are scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? John's account and God's word. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, later in this gospel, we see the record of you praying or saying that where I am, you may be also. And so, Father, grant to us that through our consideration of your word today, that, that we may be where you are, that we may seek you and find you. By your grace. Amen. Religion is acceptable, grace is not. If religion is seen to be the root, it becomes the way of gaining God's favor, in a sense of putting God in our debt. By contrast to that, grace is God's favor given to us gratis, apart from what we deserve. And you say, well, of course that's so. You read again, the Pharisees heard the crowd whispering these things about him, that he, that he was maybe the Messiah. The chief priests and the Pharisees sent temple guards to arrest him. And th- this rumor was spreading that perhaps Jesus was the Christ. And the Pharisees didn't like that. This couldn't possibly be the Christ. You could, you could tell in the way he acted. The Messiah that God sent would never act the way this man did. They were still angry, it seems, that he had healed the man at the pool of Bethesda. And, and, and you look at that man, and you know, the kind of the common idea, you, you wonder if people ever learn from the book of Job, but the, the, the common idea uh, seemed to be that people... Uh, who had it good in life, who were well off, that they had God's favor, and other people who didn't have it so well, well, that was because they kind of deserved that, and they were getting what they deserved. And, and this man, aside from uh, being unable to walk for 38 years, was, 
was hardly devout. He believed in some pagan superstition about angels stirring the water so that he could get well, and he wasted all of his time down there. And surely, you know, you think about it, right? You, th- you think about the, 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 the scribes, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law who are expecting the Messiah, who are teaching about the Messiah. If the Messiah comes, what people is he going to go to? Well, he's going to go to people like them, the, the people who are teaching about him, the people who are anticipating him. The Messiah, if he comes, would go to devout people, not sinful people. And this man had, had healed this man. Not only did he go to this man and heal him, he did it on the Sabbath. The Messiah surely wouldn't do something like that. We don't really like grace. Do you like grace? Let's test that. How do you feel when God, in his providence, blesses a profane neighbor or, a, or an acquaintance while you struggle? Because that's an instance of common grace. How do you feel at the thought that someone who has done something that has injured you would become a Christian and would be forgiven by God for his sin against you? How do you feel when things just seem to fall into place and life seems to be a a glide path for people who are less faithful to God than you are? See, see, we like the idea of grace, perhaps, when it's applied to us. But that's not really grace. You know, we're so familiar with Jesus' parables that we lose the scandal of them. When I was a new Christian, I can remember reading Luke 16, 1 through 13, and I was, and I was greatly troubled by it. Because in that parable, someone called the unrighteous steward is held up as the role model. Right now, people who study the parables will tell you, well, the point wasn't the man's unrighteousness. True enough, that wasn't the point. It was his provision. But it's it's kind of odd and scandalous that Jesus picks a man like that to be the sort of hero of the parable. Why does he do that? Because it underscores that God deals with us by grace. Luke 15 tells the story of the prodigal son. That's what we call that parable. If you look at the parable, it says that Jesus told this parable to the Pharisees. And though most of the verbiage is given to the prodigal son, this guy who essentially wants his father dead, wants his father out of his life, wants to take his inheritance and go, and then finds out that life isn't so great, and so is intending to crawl back on his knees, hoping to have something better than what he has now, only to find his father in that culture throw off all dignity, run to him, throw his arms around him, kiss him, not even let him get the apology out, and call for a big party in his honor. 
And the older brother is angry. Why is the older brother angry? Well, because that son is getting something that he doesn't deserve. And he says, you've never thrown a party like that for me. That's what I deserve. See, we really don't like grace or, or Matthew chapter 20 in the parable of a wealthy landowner who hires day laborers for his vineyard still pay you denarius. It's a day's wage for 12 hours work. And so he hires some of them at 6 o'clock and then he goes out, he finds some more. He hires them at 9 o'clock and then noon and 3 o'clock. And he goes out at, at the end of the day, he finds at 5 o'clock, an hour before they're going to quit, he, he hires some people. And at the end of the day, do you remember the parable? He pays them all the same. And the people who work the whole day are, are angry. They don't like that grace has been extended to others. We have a deep dislike for grace that is exposed when it's shown to people that we think deserve less than we do. And therein lies the problem. The word deserve is important because the word deserve and grace can have nothing to do with each other. Let me say it again. True religion is not at the root of a relationship with God. It's the result of a relationship with God. True religion is response. Encountering God is by grace. And grace is unpredictable and uncontrollable. I think that's why we don't like it. Grace requires trust. You know, we often, we often, we often, we often translate uh, that word as, as faith in, in the New Testament, talk about faith. But, but I think that we Westerners tend to kind of intellectualize faith. But really the idea of faith in the New Testament is trusting in a person. I read one uh, modern systematic theologian who was talking about how y- you can't just simply teach people stuff and have them change. He said, we're not, we're not brains on sticks. I liked that analogy. We see, we seem to think that we are, that we're just like brains on sticks, that we can talk about stuff and it will, it will just make it so. So it's not, it's not really uh, an intellectual knowledge or even an acceptance of facts. It's trust in another. Grace requires trust because, because I don't control it, because I can't predict it. Grace, if we understand it really, means that I'm not in charge. Grace means that I can't control the time that grace comes. Grace means that I can't predict or control its outcomes. And, and real grace means that grace might come to people that I don't think really deserve it. Grace means that the distribution may be unfair. And grace, if it's really grace, is not something that can be presumed upon. Jesus, speaking in a related topic in chapter 3, told Nicodemus, the wind blows where it will. You don't know where it comes from 
or where it's going. You can see its effects. And so it is with everyone, he said, born of the Spirit. We read today in Psalm 95, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Why does it say that? What is it, why does it impress upon us that today, if you hear his voice, because tomorrow is not guaranteed. God may offer his grace today. It's not guaranteed that the offer will be there tomorrow. Grace, if it's really grace, can't be presumed upon. And this is the thing that brought Jesus, the the, the central thing that brought Jesus into conflict with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Jesus said to them, I'm with you only for a short time, and then I go to the one who sent me. You look for me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. And the Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What did he mean when he said, you'll look for me, but you'll not find me, and where I am... You cannot come. It's kind of an, an odd statement that Jesus makes. Not the, not the first part of it. Uh, he knows what he's come to do. He knows that his time is relatively short. I won't be with you much longer. It's that second part. You'll look for me and you won't find me. And I wonder, what, what could that mean? He's obviously got in mind that he's going to return to his father. But these are going to be the people... Uh, who are going to arrest him, who are going to call for his crucifixion. Why, why would they look for him? And I wonder, as I, as I read this, I wonder if when Jesus says this, if there's a hint of warning here to them. Because grace, if it's really grace, cannot be presumed upon. It has to be taken when it's offered. So Psalm 95 says, don't harden your hearts if you hear his voice today. The the Pharisees liked religion. Sometimes we like religion by itself because it's safe, it's predictable, it's controllable. Grace is unsafe. It's unpredictable. It's uncontrollable. And religion is not something that is in opposition necessarily to a relationship with God. But true religion is not at the root of the relationship with God. It's not the acts that we do, the, the worship that we offer, that's at the root of the relationship with God. It's rather the result of the relationship with God. True religion is a response. Encountering God is by grace. And, and grace is wider than religion likes. It's, a, it's an interesting thing that they say in response to that as they talk among themselves. Obviously, with, with derision. Where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Will he go where our people live scattered among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? And those words are spoken by them with contempt. Um, Greek had become the word for anyone who was not a Jew. 
it was it was equivalent to the word Gentile. They lived in a world where uh, Alexander the Great had conquered the known world. Um, Greek was the language that was spoken. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Greek. It's kind of like if you go up to uh, Lancaster and you see the Amish. If you're not Amish, you're English. It doesn't matter really what else you are. You're just you're English. You could be Italian. You could be. It doesn't matter to them. You're English. There's the Amish and the English. There's the Jews. And there's the Greeks. And, and as they talk among themselves, they mean for this to be derision. They say, he wouldn't go to the Greeks, to the, to the Gentiles, would he? I mean, I mean, they're the problem. That's what we're waiting for the Messiah to come for and, and overcome the, these, these Gentile oppressors. The real Messiah wouldn't do that. But this Messiah will. He does. In fact, he has. In chapter 4, we saw Jesus enter the town of Sychar in Samaria. And it's an interesting thing, you know, when Jesus entered the town in Sychar in Samaria and he encounters this woman, that, that Jesus affirms that the Jews, not the Samaritans, have the right religion. Jesus had... Uh, said when he talked to this woman and uh, uh, revealed that the uh, man that she was living with was not her husband, she said, Sir, I, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jerusalem. And Jesus declared, Believe me, woman, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But then he says, You Samaritans Worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. There was a right religion. And yet the Samaritans got grace because they got grace. They trusted him. Grace is wider than religion likes. So it was like a dagger going in when Jesus said things like he did in Matthew 8. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom, those to whom you would think had the right to it, will be thrown into outer darkness. Or in Matthew 21, when Jesus told the chief priests, the chief priests of the temple, I tell you that tax gatherers and prostitutes will enter the kingdom of God before you. Why? Because access to God is gained by grace. Is Jesus condemning religion, true religion, forms of worship or a body of faith? As I said before, it was his custom to be in the synagogue on the Sabbath. He observed the pilgrim feasts in Jerusalem. But our practice of religion does not merit God's favor. It's not at the root of our relationship with God. God's favor to us is by grace. And he calls us simply to trust in his goodness and mercy and grace given to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. True religion is not the root of a relationship with God. It's the result of it. True religion 
is a response. Encountering God is by grace. Can we learn to love grace? It's not, not natural or intrinsic for us to do so. We, we may say that we love grace, but it's belied in us, belied in me, whenever we get angry, when God blesses someone that we think is less deserving than we are. It shows that we really don't like grace. Like, like the all-day workers in the vineyard, we think, well, I should deserve more. But if we deserve it, it's not grace. God is a God of grace. And it's by grace, through trusting him, that is the only way that you can encounter him. And, and if it's by grace, my friends, then there's no sense in which you can judge others as less deserving than you. Do you understand grace? Do you grasp grace today if you hear his voice? Don't harden your heart. Well, does that mean that prayer and going to church and tithing and trying to live by Christian principles, that all that is worthless and unnecessary? Not at all. But, but true religion, true godliness, is not the root of our relationship with God. It's the result of our relationship with God. True religion is response. Encountering God is by his grace. You pray with me. Our Father, we, um, we, we thank you for your grace to us. We pray that you would fill our hearts with your spirit, that we might rejoice in it, and we would rejoice in your grace to others. Uh, Father, even others that we might think are less deserving. And Lord, if we can come to a place of doing that, we'll know that we've come to truly love grace. We'll come to understand that all that you give to us is not due to our work or our efforts or our deserts, but is by grace. And we, we seek to respond to that, Father, not because we can make you love us more or less by doing it or failing to do it, but because we do love you and we want to please you. So help us in that we pray through Christ our Lord. Amen. Mm-hmm.